Hello and welcome to The Wish Podcast. I'm Grant Bush. And I'm Sean Kaplan. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Brad Galbart. Brad is an orthopedic surgeon with an interest in orthopedic sports medicine. He serves on the executive of the South African Knee Society, as well as the South African Sports Medicine Association, and is a founder of and director of the Johannesburg Orthopedic Sports Medicine Institute, as well as an associate of the Linksfield Orthopedic Sports and Rehabilitation Center. On top of that, Brad is also the clinical director for WISH. Dr. Gabbard, uh, welcome to the WISH podcast. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me on the podcast tonight. Please call me Brad for the rest of the show. That's my name. And uh, cool. I look forward to having a great discussion on some very interesting new topics that you've given us tonight. Great. So I want to dive in and we'll start with one that's a little bit heavy with the, the concept of overtreatment and too much medicine and specifically related to the ACL. So I understand this is an issue in, in most countries and it's certainly true in South Africa as well. Um, if a person suffers an ACL injury and they get a consultation with their physio or the GP or their bio or the orthopedic surgeon, there's almost not even a question as to what the next step is because obviously it's surgery. But recent literature suggests that it's not actually true for everyone. Not everyone necessarily needs surgery. So how do we decide who to suggest surgery for and who to suggest conservative management first? Thanks, Grant. You certainly have dived straight into the controversies of ACL surgery. You haven't even given me a chance to know the audience yet. Um, I really find that a fascinating question. And the ACL is such a topical ligament that we can spend four or five days at a conference just discussing this one three and a half centimeter ligament inside the knee. And we can dissect it inside out. We can look at all the factors that determine return to play. And ultimately, what comes down is what you see in practice every day. Most physios, doctors, and practitioners will tell you what in their experience is the best way forward. And in reality, reconstructing ACL, in most cases, probably is the best way forward. And therefore, that's probably why all of these people are telling you to go and have your ACL reconstructed and come to somebody like myself, an arthroscopic knee, sports knee surgeon, arthroscopic knee surgeon, somebody who does lots of ACLs. And then we can have the real discussion as to whether you really do need it reconstructed or not. Because surgery is still surgery. And there's no always risks and rewards. And everyone's not the same. So I'm going to try in a few minutes to try and summarize, in my mind, who are good candidates for surgery and who are not good candidates for surgery, um, and who we should operate on and who we shouldn't operate on. The first thing I'll do is I'll look into the literature. And there's a great study in The Lancet. The main author is Lomander, and it was published in 2014. Um, if you correct me on that. And they did a randomized controlled trial on young sportsmen in the Scandinavian countries. And they took 100 young sportsmen and they randomized them to either having ACL surgery in one group and having no ACL surgery in the other group. And what they found was they randomized 100 patients. 50 went on to surgery. I think one or two are you can read the article, but one or two decided to not have surgery, and 50 were randomized to not have surgery. And they followed them up for two years post-injury. In those two years, interestingly enough, 50% of the group who were randomized not to have surgery, so 25 people, crossed over into the surgery group. Either they tore their meniscus or they were unstable, they had problems. And therefore, at the end of the period, 75 out of 100 patients, might have been 74, ended up with ACL surgery. And then compared those to the 25 who remained in the other group. And they found that the results in the 25 and the outcome scores in those people were equivalent to those who had surgery. 
And their conclusion was that you don't need to give surgery to everybody with an ACL injury because you've got the same outcomes at two years, whether you have surgery or not. Now, that was published in The Lancet. Not many surgeons actually read The Lancet, um, but it is certainly one of the most read journals around. And if one really looks at it, I'm going to beg to differ in terms of what that says. I'm going to say that what that says is that 50% of people who don't have surgery actually need surgery. And that 50% of people who don't have surgery may get away with not having surgery in the first two years. Is that really what you can say? And therefore, to answer your question, not everybody needs surgery. That is for sure. But certainly, if we look at studies and we look at patients and we just look at our clinical experience, most people who tear their ACL will become unstable, somewhere on the line, will tear their meniscus, or will do some further damage to their knee, necessitating either meniscal surgery and therefore ACL surgery, or wanting the ACL reconstructed. So that answers the first part of your question, that this is medicine. There's no such thing as always or never in my mind. And therefore not everybody needs the ACL to be reconstructed. So who good candidates to not have their ACL reconstructed? Well, if you're older, and I'm not going to say what old is because I'm above 40, but they say if you're older than 40, if you've got no meniscus injuries, if you've got any pre-existing arthritis in the knee, and if you're low demand, then you shouldn't have your ACL reconstructed. That's a recommendation from about 15, 20 years ago. And those patients have been shown to do worse in inverted commas than the younger patients. Certainly, if you're younger, if you want to go back to pivoting sports or anything that puts your menisci or articular cartilage at risk, then you want to have your knee fixed and your ACL reconstructed. The older group, of which I'm now part, are actually young. And I get many people coming to me playing soccer. Uh, 59 years old, I had a guy the other day, 59 years old, he wants to go back and play soccer and injure his ACL. What do you tell him? Don't worry, you're over the hill, you're past 40, we're not going to do it for you. He's young in his mind, he's high demand. Yes, he's higher risk, but he's going to go and do the rehab and he's going to give us near chance. And if he goes back to soccer, he's going to do more damage. And so in summary, if you are older, low demand, have an isolated ACL injury, so in other words, you've got no meniscus or cartilage lesions, and you rupture your ACL doing something that you ordinarily wouldn't be doing, then I think those patients are good candidates for conservative treatment to give them a chance to strengthen manage without the ACL and see how they get on. If you're younger and you want to go back to high-risk sports, it's better to reconstruct your ACL earlier before you stretch out your capsule, your other ligaments, and tear your meniscus. I hope that answers your question. It does answer my question. Thank you. Um, and then I have uh, two follow-up questions. For a patient who, who might decide to not have the surgery, are there any consequences either way that they should consider? Maybe long-term consequences? You've now opened another can of worms. Um, and if we look at the literature, the literature shows that if you go back to high-risk sports without an ACL, you're very likely to damage your meniscus. If you damage your meniscus and you lose meniscal tissue as a separate cohort of people with or without an ACL, you then feel more likely to get osteoarthritis and come to knee replacement one day. The stats show from a group in uh, Lyon in France that if you have medial meniscectomy done, you've got a 60% lifetime risk of needing a knee replacement. And if you have a lateral meniscectomy done, you have a 100% chance of a lifetime knee replacement. Now, if you tear your ACL and you then go and play sport and tear your meniscus and end up losing part of that meniscus, you're increasing your risk theoretically of being on the path to a knee replacement. Many, many authors have tried to link ACL injury and osteoarthritis and knee replacements 
but it's impossible and nobody's been able to do it directly yet. So we're not sure if one plus one equals two, but we know one plus one and one plus one equal each other. And so therefore, conservative management, again, is an option, but you risk damaging your meniscus. And while we are still on the topic of ACLs, um, are there any known biomechanical factors that we're aware of that might increase someone's risk of an ACL injury? Yes, there are. There are many factors actually that might increase your risk. Um, and I'm going to go through some of them. Some of you need to get hold of a picture and have a look at, but some simple things. If you're young and you tear your ACL, if you're a teenager, you're more likely to re-tear your ACL. If you're female, and you're young and you tear your ACL, you're more likely to re-tear your ACL or the other side. We then get to anatomical factors such as the tibial slope. And that is the angle made between the top of the tibia and the tibial bone itself on a lateral x-ray. And the lateral tib tibia has been shown to have a slope of around seven degrees from the perpendicular. If that's increased about 10 to 12 degrees, you had increased likelihood to tear your ACL. We then look inside the knee. And if you look at inside the knee, you're ACL sits in a notch in the middle of the knee, an arch of bone. They've got many different shapes and sizes and widths. If your notch is narrower, you're more likely to damage your ACL. And we measure that relative to the width of your femoral condyles, and it's called the notch width index. Um, factors that are included, including the spine height, uh, that might be factors. One could also look at your general ligaments construction, if you've got ligament laxity. And then as an aside, if you've torn one ACL, you're more likely to tear the other one. Finally, and certainly not limited only to this, if you have ankle injuries and you don't rehabilitate properly, you're more likely to tear your ACL on the ipsiocontralateral side for whatever reason, your ankle's not as mobile as it was and you tend to land worse. Those are but a few of them um, that have been shown to increase your risks. There are, however, problems that we can't always change those things. So if you tear your ACL when you're young, we can't make you old. We can maybe change your tibial slope, but that's a big operation. We can't change your biology and your ligament laxity. And so once you have those factors, we really are limited in what we can do. The last thing that I suppose puts you at risk is doing high-risk sports, cutting and pivoting sports. Things like rugby, soccer, netball is an absolute ACL killer. Just as a side, netball's one of the only sports in the world where you get the ball and stop. And so that stopping is puts a lot of load onto the knee and the ACL and twisting movement. And so therefore, contact sports, anything where you're cutting and pivoting, you can start playing those. That might just decrease your risk. Thanks for that, Brad. I would like to discuss another study that was also conducted by the Scandinavians, and this time relating to the meniscus. So with the Fidelity trial, that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, they seem to suggest that the arthroscopic partial meniscectomy showed no better outcomes in terms of clicking, catching, and locking of the knee when compared to sham surgery. Now, of course, no one who understands knee surgery and the recent literature like the study is saying that meniscectomy is a useless surgery or is not indicated in some patients. So uh, when would a meniscectomy be indicated? Thanks, Sean. That's a great question. And Another one that we spend hours and hours debating. In fact, I'm a co-author on a consensus paper that was published in the Arthroscopy Journal in February this year, looking at guidelines for the management of degenerate meniscus tears. And a group of 20 international surgeons got together to look at these factors to see exactly whether we can pin down what those factors are that would indicate surgery versus no surgery. 
one of the biggest challenges is defining what a degenerative meniscus is. And when you look at the fidelity study, that's one of the challenges because the definition of degenerative meniscus varies from different articles that you read. In essence, a degenerative meniscus is anybody really over the age of 40, unfortunately, bad number that. But the meniscus tends to get less pliable and tends to tear in a different fashion with younger people tend to their meniscus. And you therefore get complex tears, horizontal tears, radial tears, flap tears, complex tears with multiple different aspects. And in the past, when arthroscopic surgery was really getting going and many people were making lots of money out of it, putting a scope in the knee and just cleaning it out uh, was a great way to, to do that. In order to justify it, many people just said, well, it was, it was a degenerative meniscus. Now, that can mean many different things. If you've got a flap that's catching in the knee, that's certainly going to cause symptoms. If you've got a horizontal tear that isn't moving at all, that's just a shearing type of injury in the meniscus, that's probably not going to be causing symptoms. Now, as you'll know, in medicine, we have history, examination, investigations, plan. If we look at a history and examination around the knee and look at all the information we get to diagnose a meniscus tear without an MRI, we are about 70% specific and sensitive at best. In other words, we only get it right 70% of the time, according to many, many studies that are out there. So by saying clicking and locking and catching are symptoms of meniscus tears, we're actually not being very specific in what those are. And so when you start putting trials together that look at these things, already they're biased towards one way or the other. And therefore, we need to really find smaller subgroups of patients with a radial tear with a piece that's flapped into the joint and compare that to a horizontal tear with no pieces catching to a patient who's got articular cartilage lesions that might be catching as well as the meniscus tear to somebody who's got telephemoral symptoms masquerading as a meniscus tear. The last aspect of this, and something that one of my predecessors told me when I just started, and I wasn't sure what that meant, but when you put a scope into a knee, there are a lot of cytokines and matrix metalloproteinases that cause pain that are floating around inside that knee. And by just washing out those cytokines and MMPs, that also has a role to play in managing the pain and the discomfort inside that knee. And so this study is something that we've spent many hours at Congresses debating the merits and demerits. And in fact, it's been used by many funders around the world to stop funding arthroscopic surgery of the knee um, because they've said that it's not worthwhile. However, clinical practice has shown that for the right indication, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy is a very good operation. Uh, I've got some unpublished data that I've presented at Congresses that we're looking to publish that show about 80% of patients get better after an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy for the right indication. And uh, I therefore think in the right patient again, they do very well. And it's not something to be thrown out of the bathwater. So I'm not quite sure how to phrase this now. I was yeah. basically just going to ask, um, how should we address a difficult topic like this amongst our peers and colleagues when there's studies like this forcing us to kind of say, well, overtreatment is a thing and it isn't always necessary. Despite all the literature, fidelity, some of my work and whatever's out there in the guidelines, unfortunately, there still are people who will push the boundaries of what to do and will over-service. And that's an ethical issue that we all have to deal with every single day of, of life. 
you know, when you're working in the public sector and you're not being paid per case, it's easy to tell someone just to go away and not come back. When you work in the UK, and a friend of mine, I would spend some time with him there in the private sector in the UK, where you get paid unbelievably well for consultation, um, you're happy to bring that patient back every six weeks and follow them up to see if they're getting better before doing surgery. And in fact, the UK funders have incentivized the surgeons not to operate on these patients by paying them so well for consultations. That there's very little benefit to doing any surgery to the, on these patients, monetarily. Whereas in, in South Africa, the difference between a private consultation and the potential surgical fee is quite significant. As well as we've got a very demanding private healthcare base of people who want something done. They want a quick fix. But having said that, with the right indications, it's the right thing to do. The trouble is that when you go to surgeons who don't do much of these things, much knee surgery, much arthroscopy, they tend to want to do the easy cases to practice and keep their skills good. And therefore, and I'm, not, I'm just generalizing, none of my, my colleagues I'm sure might be listening to this, but you, you tend to operate on, on some patients who may not need surgery just because it's an option that's available to you. Generally, when you tend to go to higher volume surgeons who don't need the work in a way, you, you tend to be more conservative with these patients because you don't need to keep practicing on them because there's enough work coming through the door to do other stuff. And therefore, you get to treat your patients better. And generally, my rule is I don't operate on anybody for a degenerative meniscus without an MRI scan because I want to know that I'm going in for the right reason. The last thing I want to do is put a scope in there and find something where there's nothing wrong. And then you feel bad, you come and say, well, actually, you know, you just treat a little bit of something away and they get an adverse event. I'm not saying you must send everybody to me, but definitely not. I think it's important to get that message across. But it's important to choose your surgeon well. Um, it's important to be conservative. There's no rush to do any surgery. And if anybody rushes to do surgery on your meniscus, I think they probably need to be questioned. And I get questioned often if I say to someone, you best have surgery. Uh, so don't be shy. Private medicine in this country, you've got the right to ask questions. And in public, if you find the right knee unit with the right indication, and we've got a great unit at Joe Gen and at Baragwanath, you'll have your surgery done. So we've spoken a lot about ACL and meniscus, but not enough, but we need to move on. So I'm going to, I want to move on to other more common injuries in sport. There seems to be this pervasive idea among some clinicians that patellofemoral pain syndrome and chondromalacia patella are the same thing, or that chondromalacia patella is the result of untreated patellofemoral pain syndrome. How are these two conditions different? And how do you differentiate between them when diagnosing a patient? So thanks, Grant. That's a very challenging question because what you try to do is you try to separate two very related conditions because patellofemoral pain syndrome and chondromalacia patella are actually on the same spectrum of anterior knee pain disorders. And there's a huge amount of overlap between the two. Patellofemoral pain syndrome, by definition, is a diagnosis of exclusion and something that we diagnose only after we've ruled out a huge amount of different causes of anterior knee pain. And we then rely on patellofemoral pain syndrome as a general topic to put patients into. Condomination patella, on the other hand, is an MRI diagnosis. And it's something that we see on an MRI softening of the cartilage not necessarily destruction of the cartilage, but just softening an increased signal in the cartilage, some of which might still be stable, and there may be nothing to do about it. And that cartilage 
is less able to take load than normal cartilage. And so, whereas patellofemoral pain syndrome may well be just biomechanical, a young, fit, healthy, growing teenager who's grown too fast, now can't control the lever arms out longer in the, lo in the limbs, starts getting anterior knee pain and what we call patellofemoral pain syndrome. Condomination patella may be in the same teenager who's grown taller, but has an MRI change in soft cartilage that's emphasizing the increased load on that patella and therefore causing more pain. And so in my view of things, they're very much in the same ballpark, in the same circle, the same management tree, and not something that I actually do divide into two separate topics. There are different grades of chondromalacia, and there's also what we call chondral fibrillation and grade two chondral lesions where there's fissures forming in the cartilage, and these may go all the way down to bone, and grade threes and grade fours and arthroscopic findings. And these arthroscopic findings are different to what we see on the MRI scan sometimes. And so over the years, all these terms have been intertwined into one milieu of pathologies. But in reality, when it comes to managing all of these things, there might be a question later on, the management is very much similar and the same. And so therefore, although we are putting them into their boxes, they really can be managed as almost one single entity. Are there any biomechanical risk factors that we're aware of that may increase someone's risk for patellofemoral pain syndrome? There certainly are biomechanical risk factors. The first and most common one that I see is a growth spurt, a very short, sharp increase in length of the limb um, and not enough time for the muscle to catch up, particularly the muscles around the hip. There are other things such as valgus knees, uh, increased femoral uh, neck rotation, increased Q angle because of the lateralized tibial tubercle, and then other things like ligament hyperlaxity, where the patella tends to shift laterally more and more on top of all the other pathology that we've seen. Those tend to be the biomechanical issues that we can and should be looking at in these patients. Uh, discussing, uh, you, you did touch on it earlier, but another interestingly Scandinavian named conditions. Um, these are the enthesopathies, which are the Oscar Schlatter's, uh, sending larsen johansson syndrome. These are all said to be self-limiting conditions, which sometimes leads clinicians to infer that this means it's not serious and will simply get better on its own. My question is, firstly, is this true? Or should we be approaching treatment with a different perspective? I love this question. It's probably my favorite question of the evening, actually. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because Oscar Schlatter's and Cindy Glass and Johansson syndrome, which as you quite rightly said, are enthesopathies and apophysitis, which are inflammation of growth plates and occur in growing young athletes. And I use that term quite poignantly, young athletes, is one of the hardest conditions to treat. Because we know it gets better. We just leave it and we let them finish growing. And there really is nothing to do. And they come into your rooms and they sit there and they go, Doc, I'm sore on this spot. And you put a finger on that. And in two seconds, your diagnosis is made. And the next 45 minutes are spent trying to explain to them what to do about this. Because most of them are 12, 13, 14-year-old soccer players or high-level athletes in their parents' eyes. And in, I'm sure, other people's eyes as well who are playing sport four, five, six, ten times a week, who don't want to stop, 
it's their life, they love it. And you say to them, listen, don't worry, buddy, when you finish growing at 16 for males and 14 for females, your pain's gonna go away. So I'll see you in three years time and you'll prove me right. But every single day they come home and say to mom and dad, my knee's sore. And all they wanna do is get on the soccer field and go and play soccer. Now, many years ago, there was a belief that by playing more, you risk avulsing that tibial tubercle or the tendon of the bone with these conditions. And therefore, they were advised to stop playing sports until they stopped growing, until that cartilage healed into bone. Now, that can happen, unfortunately, but it is very rare. And in my practice, my general rule is to tell them to, to play, to play on, and to play within their pain range, to manage it with anti-inflammatories or painkillers when they need to, to go to physiotherapy, to do their strengthening exercises, and to stay in their comfort zone. And they must listen to their bodies. And it's the hardest thing for an early teenager to listen to his body, particularly these guys who are trying to make it in sports. And when you saw, stop and rest. Rest in my practice is the four-letter swear word. The three-letter swear word is old. We're not allowed to use those two, those two words. And when you tell a young sportsman to rest, they really look at you like you're mad. But very few come back and say, Doc, you were wrong. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. They go and they play. And the key message that I want to give to you here is they need good counseling. They need to be reassured that they are not doing more damage. They need to be reassured that they're not going to break all of a sudden. They need to be reassured that the pain will go away. And they need to be reassured that, yes, they will be left with a little bit of a lump over the front of the tibia. But ultimately, it's important that they play sport, that they play safely, and that they do get strong in the right way. Great. Brad, thank you so much for your time this evening. If listeners wanted to hear more from you or to get in contact with you, where should they look? If they want to listen to me some more, you guys can do another podcast sometime. I'm more than happy to answer more questions. We definitely will. As, as you can see, I quite enjoy doing these sorts of things. I've got two websites where there's lots of information. There's the www.linksfieldkneeclinic.co.za website, which has got lots of FAQs and stuff, particularly around total knee replacements, ACL surgery. I then have the www.sportsortho.co.za website, which we're launching now, which has got a great video platform that you can click on to show you different videos of procedures that we do and how we do them and what there is on there. You can access both of those through the WISH website, www.bits.ac.za forward slash WISH, W-I-S-H. We're very happy to have you on that. All of that's got my contact details, my email addresses, and I uh, look forward to hearing from anybody anytime they want to get in contact with me. Brad at Links from Me Clinic or Brad at Sports Ortho. Contact me anytime. Happy to chat. So that's all we have time for. Thank you for listening. Be sure to look out for our next episode where we will be discussing rehabilitation of the knee.